My name is Mike, and this is The Goods Version 2. On this show, we go inside the minds of designers, makers, and creators at work in the world today. Here is where you'll get interviews, ideas, and insights from the world of design, creativity, and invention. You'll discover new methods and mindsets that you can use to bring your ideas to life. In today's episode, we go behind the scenes of theme park experience design with Peter Marshall, design director at Forec. Peter is an incredibly imaginative creator with over 15 years working in architecture, video game design, 3D visualization, augmented reality, virtual reality, and now entertainment design. You'll learn how Peter weaves storytelling through physical, digital, and virtual worlds and creates fully immersive, magical, once-in-a-lifetime experiences for guests. If you're a fan of theme parks, this is an episode you don't want to miss. While it felt like only 30 minutes, our conversation lasted over two hours. So we're gonna release this episode a little bit differently. This episode will be broken down into three parts. Each part will be under 45 minutes. Part one, two, and three will all be released back to back. So you can listen one at a time at your own pace or enjoy them all at once. You get to choose. If this episode inspires you, please pass it on. If you like the show, you can get even more at thisisthegoods.com. That's where I post show notes, transcripts, and more, and you can get it all for free. That web link again is thisisthegoods.com. Okay, I hope you have your note-taking app ready because there's a lot up for grabs here. So let's get into it. Please enjoy episode six, part one with Peter Marshall. Hey, Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike, thanks very much. It's really great to have you here, man. I know we've we actually uh, attempted to record this one time before, um, but really where I, I want to start this second time round is being a theme park experience designer, where is your favorite theme park in the world right now? This is a question that um, theme park designers don't like to answer. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> no, but I got one for you. I have very clear answers for you. Um, my favorite theme park in the world is Universal Studios Islands of Adventure. So that's down in Orlando. There are two um, Universal theme parks down in Orlando that are kind of linked together. Um, what makes it the best theme park um, are the the attractions and 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 the theming. Uh, we got Spider Man. Um, that was like sort of a game changing ride from way back when. There's the Hulk launch coaster which is totally amazing and then you have hogwarts castle which is um the theming is incredible and that false perspective and like you're actually there and then they got this really cool thing where there's a train that you go on um where the windows are screens and um you're, you're going through sort of you know the world of harry potter and it links the two parks together um, wow. sort of through the back lot on a train. And then it's got the new Hagrid's uh, Magical Creatures ride, which is probably the best roller coaster um, I've ever been on. And then I can't leave out, uh, it doesn't count because it's a theme park zone. It's not an actual total theme park, but the new the new Star Wars Galaxy's Edge with its um, the theming and the, the integrated um, experiences uh, it's really, really dense and a really, really mm. rich, rich experience. 
Is that um, from your perspective as someone that designs theme park experiences? Like, is there something special that they're creating down there at Universal Studios that um, at the theme park that you really connect to, or is it just like how they've structured and connected things together? Well, the the Harry Potter um, part of Universal Studios, the Harry Potter zone within Universal Studios, kind of ramped up the theme park wars. Disney and, and Universal are in another stratosphere with respect to the amount of um, um, assets and money that they have to spend because they can they've got the attendance so they can you know get their ticket prices and and they can afford to make these big big moves so it's been really great for everyone else that they've been battling each other uh, for for the best experience um, and. Uh, what have they got going on? It's just a change from uh, a themed ride within a within a sort of sort of themed zone to a themed world that you walk mm. into, and it's it's just everywhere you look, you're just completely surrounded by the the actual place. And is that something like that rivalry, perhaps between the two bigger companies? Is that what's maybe uh, driving the experience and the quality forward? In your words. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Disney uh, was doing some great stuff, but then when Harry Potter came out, they were forced to up their game with first Avatar and then um, back, then they, another Harry Potter land, and then now back with uh, Universal did another Harry Potter land, and then uh, Disney had to respond with Star Wars. So it's, it's to everyone's benefit that they're mm. having to up their game. And um, might be a bit of an interesting question. Can you describe the first uh, ever theme park experience you had? Well, when I when I first started working uh, at Forek, I hadn't been to really any theme parks, which was crazy. Um, and the first one I went to was uh, Universal Studios Islands of Adventure, and I was toured around it by this uh, guy Johnny at my office, who's um, just, he's a genius. He's amazing. He's a master planner for parks all around the world. And he designed that park because our company did that park way back when. And he took me all around it and showed me all the secrets and little details that he designed and took me on the, on the ride that he designed in the rain. And, uh, we just had a great time together. And so I, I couldn't believe that that was my first theme park experience was the designer of the park taking me around a park that our company had designed and well i mean it's the number one park in the world right now so i it's not just me saying it because it's ours <laughs> mm. and can you describe what was like going through your mind as you were touring around with the designer who designed the experience that you were now going through what was that like well when you're in one of these places they kind of they kind of feel pseudo real and in real life, things kind of happen and an environment or a city builds up over time and decisions are made along the way by countless generations of people as they build up this space. But this space happened all at once. And so he can walk around and go, oh, that paving pattern and that railing detail and that's supposed to invoke 1950s Americana. And oh, I remember we picked out that Mustang and all the signage over here. And oh, you can see the transition as we move from one zone to the next. You can tell the sidewalk detailing changes and the material of the 
you know, pathways and the walls. And I, I just kind of underestimated the amount of work that had to go into designing every single thing. It was crazy. Mm, mm. Yeah, I get get a sense that you like you're just seeing the level of thought and detail in every little thing that um, this person has actually thought through along the way. Um, they they've designed and taken everything into consideration in that scenario. I imagine. Yeah, and it, of course it's a, an enormous team, thousands of people. Um, mm. But at the same time, everyone, you know. Everything's got to be designed and, you know, so you, you, you take ownership over, you know, little pieces along the way. Mm. What was um, probably the most memorable little detail that um, he stepped you through when you were going through this theme park experience together? We went on to the Kong ride, which is um, King Kong. And it's this really cool um, motion simulator. Well, you get on a bus and then the bus is like a safari bus and it drives up through these crazy gates and it's like lost civilization, jungle world. And the bus drives up onto this motion platform. And then the, the platform that the bus is standing on starts moving around in sequence with the film components that are surrounding you along with live sets. And so there's this big battle between a, a couple of T-Rexes and, and King Kong all around you and smashing on top of the bus. And he was telling me all about the, the facade that he had, uh, that he had taken an, an early part in designing way back in concept. Someone, some other team members carried it forward, but he had showed me a picture on his desk of this facade component with like this kind of mask, this, this, you know, gorilla face in abstract on this huge, huge facade, you know, five, six, seven, eight stories up. And I was just amazing to see it in real life with him in the rain. Wow. That sounds quite remarkable. Like, it sounds like an experience that um, when you're walked through by the person that really designed the experience, you experience it in a whole other way than just someone that comes in, you know, with pure imagination of what this is going to be like as an experience. Yeah, you, you kind of have to go on the ride two or three times to really be able to take enough of a step back to analyze what, what's gone into it. Because the first mm. couple of times you're just completely engrossed in the ride itself and the experience rather than being able to analyze it. Mm. I, I imagine it's similar to how um, film enthusiasts watch films a number of times to just subtly see the differences and the details that they might not have known when they went through it the first time. I can imagine there's something similar there for you. Absolutely, absolutely. You you know, you take off your 3D goggles and you lean out the side of the ride vehicle and you look behind you instead of in front and you, you try and, you know, you're looking up at the ceiling instead of right at the heart of the action uh, to try and pick up uh, the details of, of how they pulled the thing off. Mm. And uh, as someone that designs these experiences now, like, do you... Um there's that moment of magic where you might go through it for the first time, but do you find yourself looking for the details and be like, oh, how did they do that? Like, what, what did they do? How did they actually achieve this? And is there some kind of curiosity there that's there for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the best. That's what you want. You want, you want to be able to not understand what's going on um, so that you can be freed from your analysis of that and just be immersed in it. Um, but then as a designer, you're, 
you're desperate to try and figure out what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Why do you think people love theme parks so much? Catharsis. Catharsis, the, the, the opportunity to leave reality and then have um, a unique physical and emotional experience. Uh, the, it's just you get to leave your daily life behind and then really shake yourself up and, mm. and, and have a – it's a kind of a, a chance for a, a little rebirth in, in the, in the mm. middle of that experience. Almost like escape and transformation in some way. Yeah, it's a big reset button. Hmm. Uh, and what are the things that every great theme park has in common that you've noticed? The ability to make memories for people. That Interesting. You would, in that experience that's so unique that it's taking your imagination and your actual physical body to places that it just can't go anywhere else and like this unique experiences that you share with other people and and mm. together you get to make these unique memories because you're in your neurons are firing and wiring together in this moment because it's it's so different and so extreme and your and your your brain is just paying very close attention to these these very particular you know, emotional and physical experiences that these heightened experiences that you're going through. And then that actually gets wedged into your head forever. So to think that we would have the opportunity to make memories in people's minds is like an incredible, exciting responsibility and very fulfilling. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I haven't ever like met a designer that talks about design, like designing memories. Uh, And I'm really curious about how you think about designing memories then or designing for those memories. Is is that something you hold in context when you're actually, you know, piecing things together in your mind of how a park may look? Are you really like trying to imagine what memories you may be creating for people in the future? I, yes, yes, everything is through the eyes of the of the guest and everything is working toward triggering a specific emotion as a part of a mm. larger narrative and in an ideal world um you don't have a singular experience and it's, it's not even a singular memory you have a series of memories that um work together to create a, a journey for the guest in the in the in the park but specifically what memory yeah you're 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 building up you know what's happening in the queue as you wait what did it look like mm. from the outside are you excited could you could you is there anticipation for what's going to happen and increasingly um, you know how can you open that experience up to be ever more engaging and ever more immersive and there's 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 lots of discussions about about how that might work, how how it might not just be so linear. How how could it be more of a sandbox for the guest? Mm. Can you uh, describe that a little bit more, like the difference between it being linear and being a sandbox, and what that looks like? Sure. Uh, a carousel 
is a unimodal experience. You you go on it, and it's the same time thing every time. You go round and round, and and you and you get off. And you know that if that's what you wanted to do, then great, you're super satisfied. But it's the same thing every time. Uh, a multimodal experience allows for different outcomes. Um, perhaps they're a random different outcome for the ride. Like you don't know what's going to happen. It's going to turn left or it's going to turn right. And there are also scenarios now within sort of the cutting edge of, of ride technology where a guest would be involved in the decision-making process and could affect their outcome. And so if we look back to the, you know, the genesis of, of, of video games, um, Grand Theft Auto, which most people have heard of, the first one that came out, what made it so special was that it was a sa sandbox game. If you think about some video game experiences, they're very linear and you follow the path mm. of the narrative that they've set up for you and the scenes are all scripted. And then there are other video games where you can walk around and do whatever you want, like Zelda, for example, and you, know, you, you can explore. And those are typically in just dramatically more immersive, dramatically more engaging and allow guests to to dig in and come back again and build on their experience and get sort of increasingly uh, engaged in 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 creating their own narrative. Mm. And how does that translate into themed experiences? Like, what what does that actually look like in practice? Because uh, I can imagine, you know, you you describe the carousel. You walk in, you go on the carousel. The carousel is completed. You have that contained experience. But in the greater context of a theme park, you've got m like many different ride types. You've got you know many different kind of themed areas and attractions. And how does it actually look to uh, construct an, like an open world for people to like play in? Well, speaking specifically of an attraction, we can imagine um, a dark ride and. They now have trackless dark ride vehicles. So in the past, you'd get on a little platform that would take you into a dark room. The reason they called it a dark ride is because it's usually indoors and it allows the themed components, um, animatronics or you know, uh, uh, little stage sets to be framed in a really dramatic way that hides all of the surrounding area and keeps your focus on the little stage sets. And in the past, those vehicles were on tracks. Now they're trackless ride vehicles, which means they can go anywhere. So they can very easily turn left or right instead of having to go and stay on their on their track. Because, you know, a switching track, that's difficult to orchestrate. So they could effectively go anywhere. And there are a new, there's all kinds of new input devices available upon those ride platforms. And so it would be up to the designer to determine systems which would allow the guest to choose their own adventure as they moved through this dark ride experience. So that that's an mm. example of what it might look like. Fantastic. Um, out of curiosity, um, being someone that designs theme park experiences, what's something that only insiders know that the general public would not be aware of? I was asking my friend Nathan about this and he's, cause he's a, he's a, he's a theme park nut. He, we, we sit next to each other and he's amazing. Um, and he's like, well, he was telling me all about these Easter eggs and, you know, the wall that you have to get your picture in front of. And he told me about um, at Space Mountain, there's a secret entrance that nobody knows about. And it's like one of the most popular rides. But if you just go around past the one entrance and there's, an en there's a second entrance that's always empty. 
Um, beyond that, it's uh, you know the back of house, um, back so front of house and back of house. Front of house is where a guest would be, and back of house is the area that services the front of house. The back of house for theme parks is as big, if not bigger, than the front of house. Uh, I don't think people, many people know that. There's like a whole city back there with like places for people to live and places for people to – like staff can eat and live and, and you know, make all the food that needs to be shipped in. And it's just a whole world of industry back there. Another one would be uh, rock work, which was a big surprise for me. As you walk around and you see these natural environments, it didn't really, you know, didn't really sink into me that all that rock is fake. Because I was like, well, why would you have fake rock? And it has to do with the weight of the rock and how difficult it is to install. And the art of creating fake rock is an industry into its own with, you know, special artists and a hierarchy and a career and like calling in the specialists and prototyping and like it's unbelievable. I had no idea. Wow. So there's like an entire industry about making fake rocks. A huge multi, probably a billion dollar industry of, of fake rock. Wow. Wow. And um, just jumping back to the, the behind the scenes, kind of the city that you described before, is that something that you as a designer have to consider when you are um, creating the, the maybe the land assembly of how the, the park's going to come together? Like, do you actually have to think through like where are the kitchen's going to be? Where are the staff? Where's the staff housing going to be? Is that something you have to design as well? Yes, very much so. Wow. Uh, it's all a part of the the master plan. Um, I think for a lot of people, when you think about designing a theme park, uh, there's kind of the the master plan at the front, the, you know, the front of house master plan. And then there's the attractions that work with the rides. And I think most people know that we don't do the rides themselves. We coordinate with the ride engineers because it's so intense. We do do the attractions and, and work with them. But then the master plan is a very, very complex uh, uh, matrix of decision-making processes that very much includes the back house. Mm, mm. And is there someone, is it like a master planner that plans out the overall architecture of how the, the park is going to be laid out and that you collaborate with? Or is that something that you do as well? Forex started originally as a a landscape design firm way back when, um, a serious landscape design firm, and through circumstance and opportunity became the company that we are. And one of our main strengths and attributes, uh, amongst others, and I can get into that more later, but master planning is like right in our wheelhouse. You would, if you wanted to master plan your theme park, you would come to us. Fantastic. And we'll, we'll dig into that um, uh, in a bit. What I wanted to do is maybe shift gears and hope that you can maybe take me back to starting your career because you've had a really interesting journey so far and I'm really curious where it all began for you. I was thinking about that. Where where did it all begin? I, I'd say architecture school at the University of Waterloo. It was a co-op program with incredible classmates and, and teachers. It was co-op, which was great because then you get job experience. And um, 
it was quite a journey for me. In third year, I discovered 3D modeling, which was a crucial, crucial moment for me because I was really struggling to get the ideas that I had in my head out in a way that other people could understand it. That was So that was, mm. I'd say that's where it started. Like uh, you were trying to unlock a communication barrier that you were, you were having. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> I failed second year because I drew the plans and elevations of three floors and two facades on one drawing all on top of one another. <laughs> so, it's kind of, so if you can imagine a 3D model that had collapsed on top of itself, yeah. that's what I had uh, presented. And it was it was great design, but nobody could understand it. So when I went back yeah, to the- almost like a pancake. This, it was just like, what? It was all there for me, but impossible for, for anyone else. I was kind of a crazy person back in university. So I had some maturing to do and um, you know, modeling was the key for me. Yeah, and um, throughout your university experience, did do you pick up things that maybe led you to like a, a particular starting point in your career journey? Like, wh where, like say if you finish university, like where did you go next? Like, how did you um, make that transition from student to early stage career um, opportunity? Like, where did you go from there? Right. Well, that was a big part of the co-op program. So I was in architecture. I'm not sure if I mentioned that, but the you know, I graduated and, and was in school during the the recession of the 90s uh, in, in North America. So I was, you know, I was working landscape. I was working construction. I was digging holes. I was sweeping concrete. And through time, you know, different job opportunities became available. And the work that I had done for my thesis project on... Uh, rendering, which is, you know, or architectural visualization where you use a 3D model to um, create a, a photograph of, of, your, of your project. Uh, my skills in that translated into uh, a job in, in, in the world of architecture. Oh, fantastic. And um, do you think that experience that you gathered in the world of architecture has really influenced the work that you're doing today in theme park experience design? Absolutely. Um, the school, the, the school that I attended was the university I attended was, it was an amazing education. It was really well-rounded. And uh, I truly believe that once you've learned to design, uh, you can design anything. Once you mm. dig in and understand the, the variables and constraints of that, of that new topic. Uh, you mentioned just now that you can design anything, and I know that you didn't uh, stick around in architecture, uh, and you actually like made a career change. Uh, can you tell me about like where you went after architecture? Yeah, I was. I had a great job. It was called Kia Architects. With uh, I was inset into Rice Bryden. I was working with, with uh, my boss Karen, and and an old friend of mine was working at a video game company, uh, Rebecca, and. They had found that architects made for good employees because because of that ability to apply design skills to a, a multitude of scenarios. Also, the lighting software that I uh, was using in my own work was the lighting software that they wanted to work with. So I ended up managing to get a job working for Rockstar Games, um, being a starting off as a as a lighting design. Uh, a lighting designer for that team, and then moving into um, 
helping with art direction as well. Mm, and what was it like translating your skills in architecture to designing lighting scenarios as a, as a lighting artist? Well, because I had spent so much time, you know, using 3D modeling and, and lighting and rendering as a tool to visualize my own projects, um, it, there was a very clear translation to, to visualizing the, the game. It was a game that you had to, you know, sneak around in. So the, the lighting was important to, so you could feel in shadow when you were hiding and then out in the open in the light, very moody and dramatic. And what was it that drew you into video games? What, what really interest, interested you about creating those kind of experiences and scenarios? I loved playing video games. I still do. Um, I, I was playing. I was. What am I playing? FIFA with my with my son, and I'm I'm playing. Um, well, a couple other video games right now. It's. Um, I love playing video games. I love playing in general, and the thought that I might be able to do that as my job and have that sort of passion come alive. I, I had been imagining what it might be like to work in video games and, you know, uh, working on video game design with my friends. And of course that was all very naive. Um, <laughs> when you actually go and work for a video game design company, you don't get to design video games. That's for the people who have a lot of experience and understand the complexities involved in the, in it. And when you first st start up, you're, you're a cog in the cog in the wheel, you're a cog in the machine. Mm, like you're doing one particular kind of um, slice of the work, I imagine. Yeah, I was I was with the um, the modeling team and the and the you know the environment building team. That's that's where I lived and um, working with the three D three modelers and the textures and the lighting team, uh, building the actual world. And what did you learn about um, design and design in particular about designing virtual worlds that you think is um, translated across into your work today? The really cool thing about video games is you get down into the world and, you know, either it's a third person or it's a first person perspective. Um, as an architect, sometimes you're you know, you're way up at 30,000 feet looking down at your project and, you know, maybe you set up some cameras and, and, and fly in, but in a video game, you're, you're immersed, you're, you're immersed in a world and you're looking for visual cues to help you understand where you are. You're looking for, um, you know, a way forward and understanding your path and your role. It's that whole who am I, where am I, and what am I doing? And how do you communicate that as quickly as possible? And so the, those apply directly to what I'm doing now. Hmm. Um, given that you'd spent some time in video games, why did you actually decide to leave that? Was there something there that you weren't quite um, getting fulfillment from that had you look for something new and exciting? Like, what was that actually like? The video game industry was still in its infancy back then, I'd say. It's maturing a bit now. Um, but back then, what are we talking about? Early 2000s, so that's 20 years ago, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, basically, overtime and life-work balance 
in in five years there, I worked three years overtime. I was there. Wow. I had like 110 hour weeks, 120 hour weeks. Um, and my my daughter was born. My daughter Hannah was born, and uh, you know my friends were a little worried about me. You know I had the sunken eyes of a of a video game uh, uh, developer, and um, yeah, that that Hannah made that that decision really easy. It was it was time to go home and and uh, find work balance with my family. Mm. Given uh, your daughter being born was a defining moment um, for you to reconsider things, uh, how did you decide what to pursue next given your experience working these 110-hour weeks? Uh, I, I'd imagine given um, you having a newborn, you'd be very conscious not to put yourself in a situation where you're, you're there again working so many hours. So how did you actually... Um, decide what you could pursue next given your new life circumstances? Well, there, there's a job in between video games and my other job uh, as well. Uh, so I went to work with Design Store, which is an architectural visualization firm. I was there for, for 12 years. Um, you know, my wife's an architect uh, still, and, and she finds a lot of fulfillment from it. But was never really for me necessarily, but I did love architectural visualization. So I, you know, I, I took a break after leaving video games and hung out with my friends, um, you know, polished up my resume and kind of got back into architecture, leaned on that, but not in the same way. Um, I started jumping into working on architectural rendering in earnest for a firm that exclusively did that. So I was with, uh, for 12 years, I was with, um, Nick Mashenko, uh, uh, his office with uh, Henry and the whole gang there, they were amazing. Um, that allowed me to have a great life-work balance. Um, but eventually I, uh, I hit a bit of a ceiling there and needed to move on from that job as well. Hmm. And identifying that you hit that ceiling, uh, how did you then come into contact with Forek? And what was that like for you? Um, that was really, really interesting. Um, because I had been with them for, uh, quite a long time and it took it, I, I really had to give it some time to get into understanding what I would need to do next. I wanted to be really mindful of what job I was looking for next. I knew I wasn't being fulfilled in that job anymore. And, you know, I, I had a therapist. She was amazing, my therapist, Diana. And we dug into that. And, you know, she got me away from just thinking about the job. And she got into helping me to identify what would give me fulfillment. What would I want to do? And so what that turned into was that I no longer wanted, I needed to get in, back into design. Um, with architectural visualization, I'm was interpreting somebody else's design. Often those moments where you're bringing someone else's project to life, they come at the end of the project uh, mm. design cycle. It's being designed. And, and now it's just some details along the way that need to be re refined. And so I discovered that I needed to be closer to the front end of, of design, closer to where, you know, the genesis of design exists. So started looking at online postings, which are useful to understand role descriptions. You're like, okay, that looks like something I would like to do. 
And that looks like something I might like to do. That's got design in it. And you can also find out what job titles, um, what, what, what are companies calling these different jobs that you think might suit you? Because I had no idea that I was supposed to be, uh, what I was going to be called or what I was going to be in. And then the mind map, you and I sort of briefly touched on that last time we talked. Basically a, a, a flow chart, a flow chart to map out, um, you know, where I might go next. Hmm. And how, how did that mind map actually look? Was it um, scenarios? Was it people? Like what, what, were, you, what were the kind of um, building blocks of that map? Yeah, I was just using an online software where, you know, you kind of put yourself in the middle. And then, you know, branching out from that are the things that you know how to do in a way that, you know, you might be able to monetize them. You know, like I know how to 3D model. I know how to, you know, I don't know, dig a hole. <laughs> like then, all your various skills. Yeah. And then what do I not know how to do? And what, uh, what do I, you know, what do I want to find out how to do? And then you put names on it oh, I know this person who knows how to do this, and I know this person who knows how to do this. I don't know anyone who knows how to do this. And then at that point, you know, my friend Paul said, why not schedule interviews to go and meet people and, and talk to them about what they find fulfilling in their job? It's not an interview. Wow. You're not looking to try and get a job with them. You're finding out what they gets them exciting and see if you might get excited about that too. And in an ideal mm. world, maybe they can tell you to go talk to somebody else as well. So you're really coming from a place of curiosity and exploration instead of like trying to get an outcome or get a job or something specific from that. Yeah, you're really trying to understand what it is that's going to give you fulfillment within your job and what skills you can bring to bear within that and then understanding you know what you might need to learn in, mm. in order to to meet that goal so and i worked with another friend of mine on, on the next step of what that might be which is prototyping so you don't exactly know if you're really going to be good at that or if that's going to be something that you know because to be good at something you really have to commit yourself to to being an expert and to commit yourself to being an expert of something, you have to be incredibly passionate about it. And, you know, you can find out pretty quickly how passionate you are about something by trying it out. So my friend David and I, we, you know, he was working with a friend with, uh, with Greg and the three of us, you know, they thought, Oh, maybe Peter can help us out with, with our business, a, a fledgling architecture firm that was also doing some really cool VR projects. So I just, you know, muscled up, figured out VR, you know, got it going on my PC, tried to jump into that. You know, we did a project that had a VR component that was in a library. It was totally awesome. And then, you know, eventually I kind of realized that I didn't have enough to bring to their office to, to make a full-time job with them. And so that mm. was a prototyping experiment that I took on at my own time and my, you know, uh, my own cost and, you know, to see if it was right for me. It's quite interesting the way that you've just like described things. It's like you've done this design discovery um, work and then moved into a prototype to validate if this 
career possibility was a good fit for you. So you've, you've run this like very meta, interesting design discovery process, but just on yourself and the work that you're actually doing, I'm finding that really quite fascinating in what you're describing. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's the, the first time when I, when I went to work for the design store, you know, you get the young, young kid looking for something that, that's, that, that I can control. And then now the kids are a little older, and I, and I've got a bit more time and and a, a little different opportunity to jump into something with both feet. It doesn't need to be in my wheelhouse. I can really reach out and go for something. So I was a lot more mindful uh, the second time around. Fantastic. Um, you mentioned before um, you were um, perusing job descriptions and reading the role descriptions. Uh, I'm really super curious about how someone frames the job description for a theme park experience designer. Like, is it person required to design amazing memory experiences for children? Like, what does that actually, when, when did you come across it and what did it say that spoke to you? Well, um, interestingly, I did not come across a, a job posting for Forex the first time around. They actually did reach out to me a while back um, to be a 3D modeler on their team, and I I didn't quite understand what Forex was about. It's pretty complicated um, office for an outsider because there are are six studios within it that do a an, a huge variety of work, not just theme parks. It's just the kind of theme park that gets everyone's attention. Um, Eventually, you know, I've, I've got my VR, I've got my, my, my resume and my portfolios up. I'm, my mind is open. I'm working on my mind map. I'm meeting people. I'm ready to, to hear anything. And I, I meet a guy after playing squash. You know, it's, it's an unlikely scenario. But the point was that I was ready to analyze opportunities to see if they fit what I had identified as what would be fulfilling for me. And the, the, the tasks that I would, had identified could take place in a whole bunch of different fields. It, it could be anything. I, I didn't know where I was going to find this position. I just knew parts about it that, that were important for me. So in the end, we kind of end up, I go for an interview at, at Forex and, you know, we're interviewing each other. We're seeing mm -hmm. if there's a fit there, you know, because I'm being proactive and not reactive. And, you know, this, it, was a, it was a very, very funny, funny meeting um, to, to sort of be introduced to this world. As you say, like, what does a job posting look like for a theme park designer? And what does an interview look at a place like that? Well, it looks like what you might expect. It's just like, what? You, oh, my gosh. Like, just it's mind blowing. <laughs> And how did they describe the role to you uh, when you were like going through that interview process? Well, because we're up here in Toronto, um, you know, down in Orlando and, and in California, there's an industry, uh, you know, in the same way that we're kind of like, you can imagine Hollywood or Hollywood North, you know, the, in, a, in, a, in that studio environment, Staff moves around and teams are assembled to work on jobs and there's a huge talent pool that you choose from and everybody's moving around in between studios. That's not the case up here. We're, like, we're the only theme park designer in Toronto. And I mean, again, we do other things. I'll, I'll tell you about it later. Um, but we're the only office of this type in the, in the area. So it's just us. So we have a lot of homegrown talent. So they're looking to identify people whom they think could grow into the role, who have skills that um, 
can be translated and could work in parallel with their needs as opposed to mm. bringing in someone with a lot of industry experience. So the, you know, when I arrived for the interview, I was completely blown away by the unbridled creativity on display and and just how it was just you know, as Tim, uh, you know, the, the lead architect at the time, uh, head of the architecture studio said to me, well, you know, do you like making stuff up? And I'm like, well, yeah, I love, <laughs> <laughs> I love making stuff up. He's like, great. <laughs> so, you know, what that turned into, do you like making stuff up? Do you like writing about it? Do you like illustrating it? Do you like, you know, finding ways to communicate it to other people? And that's what the job turned into. Well, this has been huge, but everything good must come to an end. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, you can get the goods on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network or listening app. Thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Mike signing off. Listener.